Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War history group. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website, westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 18th of July, 2022, and this is episode 264. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Dr Spencer Jones, a senior lecturer in war studies at the University of Wolverhampton, about his latest book, The Darkest Year, which is an edited volume of essays that looks at the British Army in 1917. This book is published by Helian & Co. Spencer spoke to me from his home in Wolverhampton. Spencer, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, thank you for having me on, Tom. And my interest in the Great War started at a really early age as a child. I was lucky enough to have relatives, my grandfather, who had, of course, lived through the Second World War, and they really fired up my interest in military history in general. Um, I did and abetted by my father, who was also very interested in the general arc of military history. But my real burning interest in the First World War really stemmed when I picked up almost at random in a newspaper shop, in fact, a post office. In those days, you buy books from post offices, perhaps showing my age a little bit. I picked up a copy of John Terrain's The um, Retreat from Mons, or I should say Mons, The Retreat to Victory. Um, absolutely gripped me. I thought it was an incredible book written with the, the pace and speed of a, a thriller, really. And it really fired my interest in the First World War. And that interest has, has never gone away. And it's just grown and grown. In fact, as the, the, the older I get, the more I, I realise there's so much more to discover about the First World War. So that's where it all began. So John Terrain, but not perhaps in the way that most people were influenced by John Terrain. Of course, his biographies of Haig. In fact, I was influenced by his his very first book, in fact, which was about Mons and that really sparked my interest and some say I've never moved beyond Mons but that <laughs> says the current book we're discussing I hope proves that's not true. And we're going to discuss today the latest collection essays in a series you've been doing called The Darkest Hour. We'll come on to that in a sec but this is a series of books that you've done which has looked at sort of 1914, 15 and 16. So what has been the purpose behind these books or these sections of collected essays? It's a story that, that's, I get asked quite a lot, actually, Tom, and, and I wish there was some sort of master plan I could discuss behind it, but, uh, but there isn't. So, so the very first book was called Stemming the Tide, Officers and Leadership in the British Expeditionary Force, 1914. And that book is, appeared almost completely by accident. I had a meeting with the owner of Hellion and Co., Duncan Rogers, who's been a tremendous supporter of this series and military history publishing in general. But I had a lunchtime meeting with him. This is way back in, um, I, I can't quite remember when, it was either 2011 or 2012, it was a long time ago. And we had a lunchtime meeting to potentially discuss projects. The first time we'd ever met each other, we immediately uh, got on very well with each other. And I had an idea that had been floating around the back of my head, which was to attempt to do Churchill's Generals, which is uh, was edited by John Keegan and was a book I'd really enjoyed in the past, try and combine Churchill's Generals, individual biographies written by different authors about different generals in the Second World War, with one of my other favourite books, John Terrain's Mons. And so why not do a book about command in 1914? And went through various potential titles. Uh, it's it's difficult to, to do a, a Churchill's Generals because you'd either had Asquith's Generals or possibly even French's Generals, which has a slightly odd implication. And in the end, the name Stemming the Tide um, came. Went through various other uh, potential names, but that was the name that was chosen. <clears throat> 
I'm sometimes asked about how we went about uh, approaching contributors for this. So at the time I was doing Stone the Tide, I was a very junior academic and didn't have the contacts that I've got now. And so I was, I was heavily reliant on asking other people for advice, which is always a good, good idea. If you're ever unsure of something, ask lots of other people for advice. And ironically enough, lots of these meetings seem to occur in either pubs or coffee shops. So it's, you know, sometimes the, these were battles fought over pints, but I collected um, a range of potential contributors contact them, of course, very deferentially in those days. I certainly didn't have any kind of name of my own. And I was really, really surprised and delighted by the response. Lots of people wanted to write biographies. Lots of people got interested. Uh, and Stemming the Tide was the result. That book was more successful than I could possibly have imagined at the time. It, it was runner-up for the Temple Medal for the best prize um, on British Army history in 2014. It's gone through... Uh, many reprints. It's now on a revised edition. It's on its second printing revised edition. So it, it's done really well. And it's a book, I, it's probably the book I'm most proud of just because it was my, my second book and, and it did very well. As with all great albums, of course, the next question is what's the follow-up? And um, this led to the the, the, the the remaining books, Courage Without Glory, which covers 1915, At All Costs, which covers 1916, and The Darkest Year, which covers 1917. The, the, these books, of course, take a slightly different approach because they're not command biography and the reason that they're not is a decision that was made between myself and Duncan when we were working on Courage Without Glory the 1915 volume that there'd be a lot of repetition we'd have to cover Haig again we'd have to cover French again have to cover Robertson again and the stories would be there'd be a lot of retelling from 1914 so instead the decision was made to, to offer thematic chapters instead and to try and get a really good selection of scholars involved as well as what we might term names and i use that in, in inverted commas um, well-established scholars and academics also to bring in some new thinking through either um you know up-and-coming scholars or scholars who perhaps haven't had the opportunity to publish those who are working as independent researchers or even those and i, I hate this term instantly but even those who we might describe as an in inverted commas amateur military historians and the idea being that there'd be lots and lots of different interpretations that would add up to a cohesive a cohesive overall picture. So that led to um, 1915, Courage of That Glory, At All Cost, 1916, and now the latest volume, which is The Darkest Year at the British Army on the Western Front, 1917. And the basis to all of these is the same. It's a series of chapters <clears throat> written by a range of, of scholars about aspects of the British Army in that year on the Western Front. And uh, I have to say the response to, to all the books has been terrific. Um, I'm really, really proud of them. I'm delighted to have worked with some fabulous contributors. That they, they really, without the contributors, these books would simply not exist. That they are absolutely dependent on them. And um, I'm particularly proud of the, the current volume. Well, I'm glad, glad you said that. So where does the, the term The Darkest Hour come from? Well, the title The Darkest Year um, is actually a quotation from uh, William Robertson, who was, of course, Chief of the Imperial General Staff in 1917. And Robertson, of course, a very intelligent soldier, the only man to go from private to field marshal in the history of the British Army, uh, described as the big brain in the army. He was he had a very difficult year, personally and professionally, in 1917. He, he found himself involved in great difficulty trying to balance his commitment to supporting the military, and Douglas Haig in particular, and also answering to... David Lloyd George, who was the new Prime Minister of Queensland in December 1916. Um, 
And Robertson, so he had a very difficult prefer, uh, um, personal year balancing these two very difficult individuals and, and skating a fine line between them. And also he reflected by the end of the year that this had not this had not been a good year for the Allies. He, he looked at what had happened uh, in a letter that he actually wrote on the 29th of December. 1917, and reflected really quite sadly that this this had been a, a very bad year. France had been paralysed in the war. Russia had tumbled out of the war. Italy had been uh, dealt a devastating blow at Caporetto. Um, the British had failed to break through on the Western Front. The U-boat war was still raging. Everything seemed to be falling to, not exactly falling to pieces, but certainly was in a, a very difficult position. And he reflected uh, this may well be the darkest year of the war. And I think in, in some ways he was right. He, he was correct that it's easy for us to, to reflect and say, well, actually, 1917, the German position internally was deteriorating greatly. The, the, it wasn't as perhaps clear cut as this is a, a triumphal year for the central powers. But if you were William Robertson reflecting on all this without the benefit of hindsight, without knowing what happened in 18, it would be easy to look at 1917 and think this was the darkest year. Um, there's, a, there's a little tr a trend, incidentally, about the titles for the books, and it's purely self-imposed. Nobody's ever told me to do this, but uh, accidentally, all three, all of all three, all four books so far have had three-word titles. So Stemming the Tide, Courage Without Glory, At All Costs, and The Darkest Year. Not planned entirely accidental but I'm, I'm quite proud that all three of them ended up with these and uh, this is the only title which has a direct quote as its title and I chose it <clears throat> one of course because it's got great lineage comes directly from Roberts and secondly because I think it's a great um, way to start conversations with other historians about is this the the darkest year or is, say 1915 worse than 1917 and uh, I think it's a great starting point for discussion. Which brings me neatly onto the next segue in who has been making these discussions? Who have you got to contribute to this this very academic and brilliant tome? I think there's some wonderful people there. Um, tell us who they may be. Well, I, I'd like to highlight particularly a, a particular author who's written a chapter which I happen to think is an excellent one, and that's, of course, Dr Tom Thorpe, uh, the host of this very same podcast. And, of course, Tom, you've written a, a, an excellent chapter on cohesion in um, the British Army, which is a great topic, incidentally, for those uh, listening, because it's something we often don't think about, about the stresses and strains on the British Army. The contributor list this year, there's, there's 16 uh, separate chapters, <clears throat> In the darkest year, of course, I've written uh, one myself. I've written about David Lloyd George, who I think is a, a fascinating and difficult and puzzling character. It's almost an enigmatic character. He's, he's one of those types of character who I, I think, he, he, as with many wartime prime ministers, generates very strong opinions. You can be appalled by some of his personal failing, you know, absolutely appalling treatment of his wife, um, very, very dubious financial activity. But I, I think sometimes his... His role as a, a strategist or would-be strategist is, is sometimes underestimated. And I actually think it, it's sometimes very easy to cast Lloyd George as a, a pantomime villain because that throws Douglas Haig into a, a somewhat better light. And I've tried in the chapter to offer a slightly different take on that and just show the complexity of the situation. So obviously I, I've contributed... You've contributed to Tom, absolutely excellent piece. I recommend everyone read it. We've got some, for those of you who've been following the series up until this point, there are some familiar names. Um, John Spencer, who's written a chapter on Robertson in every year of the war so far. Of course, that's Dr. John Spencer has contributed another chapter on essentially the fall of Robertson. Robertson doesn't completely fall in 1917, but he's in grave decline uh, by the end of the year. And uh, uh, John is one of the experts on Robertson's career. Uh, and has written a very, very interesting chapter on how he was, Robertson was essentially outmaneuvered 
during this period. <clears throat> I've also got um, a chapter from Charles Fair, of course, you're working on, on a PhD at this moment, about the transition from OTCs, Officer Training Corps, to OCBs, Officer uh, Cadet Battalions, and the reform of junior officer training, which I think is a, a largely understudied topic, actually, in the First World War. There's an awful lot said about SS-143, the ch tactical change to emphasise the, the platoon, but rather less said about how do you generate all the second lieutenants who are going to drive those platoons forward. And Charles's chapter really looks at this, looks at the reform of this, um, looks at the improvements in how this was made more professional, more systematic. I think as well, it provides a really interesting follow-on from a chapter that was actually in, in At All Costs by Tim Halstead, which studied the early days of officer recruitment and, and how the army in 1916 was officered. A lot of temporary gentlemen and men with the right connections. Charles shows that by 1917, that system had largely vanished and there was a lot more systematic, systemic professional training. <clears throat> And of course, there's your chaps, Tom, about cohesion uh, in British infantry battalions in 1917. Of course, the question of morale in, in um, infantry battalions in 17 has been discussed in various corners, and the idea that the army was depressed or um, possibly its morale had been shaken by the end of 1917, often discussed. But um, I don't want to uh, give you too many blushes, but your chapter takes a much more sophisticated look at this and looks at elements that lead to cohesion. It's got, of course, the academic principles that underpin unit cohesion and then examines how these are fed into in, in, in the British Infantry Battalion. And I think there's a lot of really interesting insights there, not least the fact about the kind of things that we forget battalions did, like being made to work on French farms. And you know, you draw a number of interesting examples about one thing that, that harmed morale in British battalions was, was being put onto farm work where they felt they were being poorly treated by French farmers. It's a simple little thing that seems so obvious when it's stated, but it's, um, it's, it's well worth reminding us. So there's a sophisticated chapter on that. <clears throat> Previous contributor, uh, Jim Beach, of course, known for Hague's Intelligence, an excellent volume on, indeed, the Hague's Intelligence Services, has provided a, a really interesting snapshot on an individual intelligence officer, uh, Major James Cuff, who was working at GHQ and as an intelligence anal analyst. And Jim, of course, absolute expert on British Army intelligence in the First World War, has taken a deep dive into how was intelligence analysed, which, is, of course, is different from how is it acquired. That's only part of the battling in an intelligence service you acquire it, then you analyse it, what prejudices you might bring, what systems you may have. And this is a really deep dive into a very important figure. Uh, he's had access to Cuff's papers, which have previously not been used as far as I'm aware. And so this is a fascinating insight into both an individual and how a system works. Those of you who followed the series up until this point, I know Michael Cicero has always been a contributor to this, um, great friend, great scholar. Um, one of his fascinations is what, what he might call minor actions on the Western Front, uh, some of which are large, almost entirely forgotten. And he, he's, he's particularly interested in, in trench raiding and, and some of the aftermaths of trench raiding. So his chapter examines uh, a particular trench raid, a German trench raid that hit the British in January 1917, uh, with pretty devastating effect. The British were really caught on the, uh, on the back foot by this. Uh, and it was a little bit of a disgraceful incident. This was a very successful German trench raid. The British response was poor. And it's examining what went wrong and what the, the consequences were, because this created a real spasm of introspection in the British, um, particularly that sector of the British, about how could this happen? Who's to blame? Uh, the entire thing is almost, you might describe it as anatomy of a fiasco. Uh, Michael's called it, taking a quote, discredit on all those concerned. And it's interesting to just look at, at how a small incident can lead to much larger consequences. And it's also a great insight into um, trend trading, trend trading defending in that period. 
Uh, Nigel Dorrington, um, who is actually a school teacher, but he undertook the um, First World War MA at, at Birmingham some years ago, he's written a very good chapter on the advance to the Hindenburg Line, particularly Third Corps' movement to the Hindenburg Line. Very interesting period of the war as they have to get out of the trenches and advance into um, defended localities, villages and woods and hills, uh, but has to move in a way that it hasn't moved since 1914. So he's looking at it at a core level, extremely interesting study of that and some of its problems. And the chapter that, that um, follows that is by Andy Locke, who's a PhD student currently studying the British Army in 1970. He was uh, one of my students at Wolverhampton, the Wolverhampton First World War MA. And he's uh, dived a little bit deeper into the advance of the Hindenburg Line and studied 8th British and 2nd Australian Division during their advance and has looked at it in a much more tactical way about how do these divisions go about eliminating pockets of German resistance? How do they push patrols forward? And um, he, the title of his chapter, which I think is, is really quite catchy, is Patchy Progress and Powerful Performances, because it is a, it's, it's interesting to see how some things work, some things don't. Um, it's a fast-moving campaign. It's a much more fast-moving campaign than we might remember. So he really looks at what goes right, but also what goes wrong. Um, next chapter is by Simon Innes Robbins, who has contributed to previous um, chapters, uh, to pre previous volumes, of course, perhaps best known as the author of British Generalship on the Western. And as is one of his specialist subjects is the career of Sir Henry Horne. He's written a chapter about Sir Henry Horne's development as a commander <clears throat> from Vimy Ridge, up until Hill 70, much later in the um, making an argument that the British Army was developing a genuine operational art by the um, latter stage of 1917 that, that would stand up to any other army. We're starting to get ideas of deep battle. We're starting to understand the control of tempo and war and so forth. And he, he views this through the prism of Horn's own papers. So very interesting. Um, then there's a chapter on um, the Royal Engineers at Arras by American historian Alexander Falbo Wilde, making his first appearance in the series. Um, a deep dive into how the Royal Engineers work in the First World War. And I think this is really interesting because they are such an important branch. And yet, apart from some relatively old volumes on the Royal Engineers at the First World War, it's difficult to find um, a good modern study of what they do. His chapter is wide-ranging. It's not merely about what the Royal Engineers do at Arras, which he makes a strong case, is the quintessential engineers battle. It's also about how the Royal Engineers have developed up to this point, what they do, what does a Royal Engineer unit look like, what does it include and what are its roles. Um, I'd say it's essential reading for anybody who wants to understand this long forgotten, in, in some ways, branch of the army. Next chapter is about the Anzacs and it's by um, Mel Hampton, who's contributed previously, of course, an Australian uh, military historian, uh, best known for her work on Bullecourt uh, and Poissiers Ridge. And this chapter is a fairly coruscating criticism of the Anzac Corps at Buller Corps. And perhaps by virtue of the fact that she has the advantage of being Australian, can criticise um, sacred cows that would get any British historian into deep trouble, she really takes a hammer and chisel to the preparation and performance at Buller Corps. Of course, it's a, a, a fiasco, and just like many fiascos, fiascos have many fathers, as the, the saying goes. Goth certainly doesn't escape criticism, nor do the, the Tank Corps, uh, but nor do the Anzacs, and some of the criticism of Anzac commanders is, is, is quite coruscating. It's a really forensic breakdown of what goes wrong at Buller Corps. Um, and she ties it to her earlier work on Poissier's Ridge, making the case that the, the Anzacs are developing relatively slowly in military terms, so very interesting to read. <clears throat> Next chapter is about another disaster, and that's uh, Harry Sanderson, who's PhD student at Leeds. Uh, he's written on the Black Day of the British Army, which is the Third Battle of the Scarp, uh, on the 3rd of May 1917. The quote, the Black Day, incidentally, not a modern invention. It comes from the official history, um, 
uh, written that volume written by Cyril Falls, of course, the great historian. Um, it's, it's not a cheerful read. It's an examination of the last great act of the Battle of Arras, which almost carries, it's almost as if 1915 has never happened. Inadequate preparation, things are rushed. Um, asking people to do too much with too little, rushing into much sterner German defences than expected. And uh, it's it's heavily critical of just about everybody involved, uh, not merely Allen, but also Douglas Haig. And, um, Harry presents a pretty um, convincing condemnation of, of the preparation and performance of this battle. Next chapter is Simon Shepard. He was one of my MA students of the First World War. He's a lieutenant colonel in the British Army and an artillery expert. He'd written a, a really detailed um, study of artillery at 30. In, in some ways, the artillery battle at 30 is the last great traditional artillery battle. It's after that point, there's the move to almost universal silent registration and, and artillery fighting becomes rather different. But at Third Epe, there is a prolonged, grueling battle between the British and the German army, not to mention, of course, all the fire and support of infantry. And Simon really studies this in tremendous detail. Um, it's the best account you will find of the artillery battle at Third Epe. It's um, based on his dissertation and it is absolutely superb. Lessons that can be drawn, not merely, of course, Third Epe, but also for artillery employment in general. Being the Royal Artillery's official historian as I am, it's something I've certainly been able to draw upon myself. Um, the next chapter is by James Taub. He's an American historian. He works at the uh, World War Museum in Kansas City. Um, and he's written about a division that he's got a personal interest in, which is 33rd Division, which, of course, he's fighting at Polygon Wood at Third Epe on the flank of the Australians and has a, a really intense day, um, two days of fighting. Often it's forgotten because the focus at Polygon Wood tends to be on the Anzacs achievement and his study of a uh, really an unfancied division, 33rd in many ways, is very interesting because they go through a real um, harrowing experience. They advance, they counterattack, and then they counterattack in return. And so there's a lot of movement in that battle. And he's written a very lively chapter on how this is carried out and how the division can spring from attack to defence uh, to attack once more and, and makes a case for 33rd Division having a much better battle uh, than some Australian accounts would have us believe. Um, another divisional study is, is by Richard Hendry, who studied 47th Division really throughout 1917. So at Messines Ridge and then again at a very different battle at Ball on Wood in 1917. <clears throat> again, taking a somewhat unfancied British Division 47th and studying them about how they performed, how they fought, how they learned, how they didn't learn in some cases, and how these actions played out. And I think these divisional studies can be really interesting, especially when they focus on divisions that perhaps are not so fancied, uh, are not the uh, the eye-catching formations like the 29th, 7th, 9th or 15th, but instead are what we might term more average divisions, how they perform, how they fight, because it speaks more to the, the sort of the universally to the British. And finally, ending, and, uh, ending the book is... Tim Gale, who's contributed in the past, uh, Dr. Tim Gale, I should say, expert on armoured warfare, particularly the French army's uh, armoured warfare, but also um, perhaps the only historian who can speak equally to British armoured warfare and French armoured warfare. And his chapter is, is entitled The Dark Days of the Tank, and it's about the problems that not only the British, but also the French have in 1917, getting their armoured forces into action. And that's really interesting because it's a comparative study and shows what the French were doing at the same time as the British and shows that the two forces were taking somewhat different paths in how they developed their tanks and how they approached them. Um, and that by the end of 1917, although it had been a pretty grim year for the armies, they were on the cusp of achieving really interesting. The technology was just starting to 
be available to really make master tax. Obviously, Carl Bray being as famous to a British audience. I'll just say another little thing about the contributors. And um, this is that I'm immensely grateful for all of them being involved, including yourself, because I think for those of you who are listening, who think that this that editing a book is as simple as approaching somebody and saying, you know, do you want to write this? And it all get, comes together and it's all wonderful. Of course, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Editing a book is a complicated and, and, and difficult job, but it's, re- it's made rewarding by the quality of the contributors. And every book I, I've had the pleasure of editing, I've been blessed with some great contributors. It's been a genuine pleasure to work with the, um, the 15 additional contributors and myself in this volume. Receiving the, the draft chapters and reading them, I was reading them with, with a smile on my face because there was so much interesting material in there. Um, and I think as a whole, it comes together absolutely brilliantly. And I just, for anybody who's listening, you contribute to the volume, I'd just like to sincerely thank you for, for your work. This, this book really is anchored on some fantastic chapters. And, uh, you know, you should be really proud of what you've done. I know I'm certainly proud to be able to put my name on the front cover as editor. So what do you think it says about the British Army in 1917? This is a really interesting point, and it speaks a little bit to how previous volumes have have covered the the, the war. A question I get asked a lot by um, those who are interested who've read the book is, do I give the authors a brief and say, um, you know, I want you to to consider this argument or this is the theme of the book? I don't. I I really don't, because I think that constrains the scholarship potentially. I may edit little parts of it to to avoid repetition, but I don't don't like an overall mission statement. One thing that's emerged is a a, a consensus with all the volumes that have looked at so far. And and I think that's really interesting because it's grown up completely organically. So 1914, the reflection was British commanders and leaders were, were actually really good. And even those that tend to have a poor reputation were often laboring in incredibly difficult circumstances. 1915 was, things were a lot worse than perhaps we even realized. Um, you know, this was a really, really grim year for the British army. So many things went wrong and the same mistakes getting, kept getting repeated. 1916 was a great deal about scale and, and the, 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 the sheer violence of the Battle of the Somme, the intensity of it, the strain it put on everything. And the, the move from hard fighting in 1915 to truly industrialised fighting in 1916 was very apparent. For me, the theme that comes out of 1917 is the, if I may say it, the learning curve of becoming ragged. There's no doubt that the Army of 1917 had learned a lot from 1916, and in many ways it was a more sophisticated, more advanced army, both technically, tactically, and in terms of training. It It was certainly um, a step ahead from the army of, say, January 1916. But this doesn't mean that the, its development was by any means smooth or uninterrupted. The book makes clear that for everything that the army did well, there were also setbacks and difficulties and problems. The army adapted to a wide range of difficulties, whether it was the opening moves at the uh, advance of the Hindenburg Line, whether it was set-piece battle at Arras, whether it was the, the, the battle against pillboxes at Ypres, whether it was supporting tanks in 1917. But that didn't mean that there weren't many, many setbacks. And the chapter of Andy Locke, um, his chapter title reflects in some ways the book as a whole, um, patchy progress and powerful performances. Undoubtedly, there was some excellent work done by the British Army. It was becoming a much more mobile, nimble and, and dare I say, modern fighting. But there were also errors that the like of which would not have been out of place in 1915. Harry Sanderson's chapter on the, on the Black Day really brings that home. This could well have been a battle in mid-1915 with the, for the mistakes that were being made. Or um, Mel Hampton's chapter on where it seems like nothing has been learned and, and the same mistakes over and over and again. And this, I think, speaks to <clears throat> the fact that 
the learning curve, and I know historians split hairs and can be pedantic over this and say, well, it should be the learning process because it's not a smooth motion. I, I make a point in the introduction that perhaps we should really see this as a learning race because the Germans are not static in 1917. They're adapting too. The German high command doesn't want another Somme. It wants to fight in a different way. It wants to try and break up the British and the French. Um, and to an extent, it, it, you could say that it does so because it, it changes its approach in various uh, and pro provides all sorts of difficulties for the British. And so sometimes the British have their nose ahead, sometimes the Germans have their nose. It's, it's a difficult, ongoing process. And in, in that sense as well, one of the reasons it's it's a difficult ongoing process is the major battles that the army fights in 1917 are quite different. Whereas in, in 16, although the Somme isn't the only battle the army fights, and the Somme can be subdivided into many smaller battles, that dominates everything that happens. In 1915, there are there, there are three battles around Orbis Ridge, largely from the same as the second is loose. So they're they're relatively concentrated in area. Whereas in 1917, the, the major battles or major operations, I should say, we fights, advance to the Hindenburg Line, Arras, um, Ferdy and Cambrai are all really different. They're, they're different geographically and they're different in the style in which they fall. They're, they're, they are not of a type. You, what works at, at Arras doesn't work the same way at Ypres. And what works at Cambrai was impractical at Ypres. So you see a lot of different approaches and in some ways that reflects really well on how well the army has developed how nimble it's become it speaks to simon roman's argument that the army has a genuine operational art now but it also the fact that these battles none of these battles could really be described as a clear victory they have moments where things are going really well but ultimately all, none of them achieve that the objective that they, the planners hope they're all brought back uh, in the um you know, brought back to the start line in one way or another, either through heavy casualties or they can't push forward, or in some case they lose the ground gains, which is a And so I think that's an interesting point. This is an inconsistent, difficult year. Patchy progress and powerful performances. And my final question is, where can people get the book from? Well, I, I've, I think I've made this joke on the podcast before, but wherever good books are sold is, is the answer. Um, it's available on Amazon um, if you'd like to do that, or uh, you can buy it direct from the publisher. Um, if you search Hellion and Co. Books, you can buy it direct from there. Um, I believe it's in some stores as well, some smaller, more specialist bookstores. But the best way to find it, as with all the previous books, I think, is actually to go uh, just simply type the title into Google and you'll find someone somewhere online who's selling a copy. But move fast because I'm happy to say that the, the darkest year, for, for reasons that, that I'm not entirely sure of really, and the publisher's not entirely sure of, has been the fastest selling of all the volumes so far. So a few weeks ago, I was told that over half the initial print was already sold. And that, that is fast for a, a book that is ultimately for a specialist audience in, in many ways. So clearly it's uh, get them while they're hot. There will be a paperback reprint, but perhaps not for a little while. So if you'd like a copy, and the hardback is beautiful as well, I have to say, if you've seen the previous volumes, it's way up to that standard. If you'd like a copy, uh, buy it, absolutely get your copy now and it will it will keep you warm uh, on the dark winter nights that I'm sure will be approaching sooner or later. So grab it now. Spencer, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman. 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>